electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod, Paul Tudor Jones says he can't think of a worse time for investors. What would you be telling Jay Powell right now? Oh, I'd be saying, look for another job. The hedge fund manager who predicted the 1987 stock market crash. He weighs in as the Federal Reserve begins its May meeting. You can't think of a worse macro environment than where we are right now for financial assets. Even with this tightening in financial conditions, the Fed still probably has to raise rates to get inflation under control. Plus, BP and energy politics, an unprecedented leak from the Supreme Court, and the Amazon labor union may not be a done deal. This is a big, important time for the labor movement, and they're going to do this whether it be store by store with Starbucks or whether it be warehouse by warehouse with Amazon. And cheers. Joe, you got some good news. I like this news. We still do that. One of the last holdovers of fun on the show. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Energy giant BP reporting a big jump in first quarter profits, climbing to its highest level now. You can imagine this in more than a decade. That comes despite a decision back in February to divest its nearly 20 percent stake in the Russian oil producer Rosneft, uh, resulting in a pre-tax charge of $24 billion. Now that led to a paper loss for the quarter of $20.4 billion as the company had to stop reflecting a share of Rosneft profits in its accounts. Now, BP also announcing an additional $2.5 billion uh, share buyback, but um, a lot to chew on there, a lot to chew on in between uh, all the geopolitical issues and uh, the price of price of gas. Price yeah, of oil gas. price is higher again this morning, too. I saw just a little bit ago, I think $104. So um, it's big moves that you're watching with the with commodities, with yields. Um, it's going to be for some interesting times. Employees at an Amazon warehouse on Staten Island rejected a union effort this one month after that nearby fulfillment center became the first in the country to vote to unionize. The tally was 618 votes against to 380 in favor. Those results still need to be formally certified by the NLRB. An attorney who has represented the Amazon labor union telling CNBC that it plans to challenge the outcome. So, uh, Positive news in one case for, for Amazon, but maybe not so because there'll be a continued debate about it. I mean, the challenge is this is another issue. If you looked at the vote, um, far more voted against it than for it. And far more people didn't vote than people who voted for it, too. Right. I think there are 16 or 1,700 employees there. And this is where it's going to come down to the line. It gets all of these national headlines. It's riding on a few hundred people. But again, apathy almost is the biggest vote in any of these situations. It's, it's, it's been time after time where almost more people don't vote than, than, vote, in, than, uh, than vote in some of these elections that they've got, too. And what do you do? Do you think an apathetic, do you think that a vote, a non-vote is a vote 
against the union, for the union. I would look well, I mean, at a, pe- a non-vote as no. being more likely to be against it than for it, but not it's not yeah. really against it either. Right. I, I, I mean, it's hard to see the challenges that come on these things when you have twice as many people who voted no and twice as many people, almost, who, who didn't vote. Um, but you're going to see challenges again and again, and it does catch headlines because this is a big, important time for the labor movement. They're trying to do these things, and they're going to do this, whether it be store by star, store with Starbucks or whether it be warehouse by warehouse with Amazon. They are taking on the biggest of these. And you saw, I think there was something where the, the labor union is also complaining about what Howard Schultz has done at this point, the comments he's made on this. They say by saying uh, the new additional benefits that are going to be coming in, won't be going to the stores that unionize until they formally negotiate a contract. They they are filing against him and saying they're threatening to not give these benefits to the stores. So this is this is being played on the national level, even though these are sometimes smaller stores or small warehouses where a few hundred people are making these decisions. Obviously, it's it's being played on the national screens. I, I, Howard, I've got Howard, tough to, great to add. tough to virtue signal on this one for him. I, I feel for him. I feel for him. I, I'm a SAG guy. I'm a SAG after guy. Oh. It's clear where I stand. Clear where I stand on this. I'm a SAG after guy. So uh, that's all you need to know. There you go. That's all you need to know about me. So, you know, Howard uh, on the other side of things. As good a person as he is, hard for him to, uh, to come down on this one. I actually think the hardest part, that I think the, the challenge that Howard faces and I think we've well, talked faces about it a lot before. Excuse me? He faces a lot of challenges right now, coming back to try to redo the store. Well, no, no, but I think the hardest challenge is and... that one of the things that he built into this culture, which was so unique, was that he basically used to say, it was a great line, and it was more than a line, which was that if you could have, if, 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 if you could effectively make your um, employees feel like they were getting more than they ever thought they could, they would give their customers effectively more than they ever thought that they could. And the question is, in this environment, once you've baselined that, right, he did all of this first. Other companies didn't do this. So everybody got all of these 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 benefits well, of last 20 years. It's with a lot of companies, Andrew. That's why labor participates. That's why unions have fallen to, to below 10 percent. The, the, well, there, right, and, but, and there's a lot of codified laws that, that prevent the, the, abuses, the abuses that unions used to address are now illegal anyway. So that now, once you get past that, you just deal with, uh, with compensation and benefits. And companies are, you know, if you have a better compensation and benefit plan and it's still not a union, you don't have the union dues and you don't have the political issues that go with a lot of times that go with the, look at the, the stigma of teachers unions at this point. I mean, what's the, it, it, it's almost self-defeating sometimes. So, uh, and, and there's a reason it, 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 it is a free market, and it's down, to, why is it declined from what? Was it 35% at one point, now it's below 10%? And was, that didn't happen because laws were passed and that people said you can't be in a union. It's just the way it's happened, right? I, but I, but what, I'm, not, I'm, I'm unclear about how this relates back to, back to, back to Howard Schultz. Really? I just think that I would think that Howard has it's a it's sort of he's conflicted on this because normally he would be 
as I said, you know, it's, it's, I said it right to start, it's just an aside comment. It's hard to be virtuous when you're actually a CEO and push comes to shove, and now it really matters because it's your own company. Normally, I think he'd like to come down on the woke side of things, and that would be the union side. Well, and the union, in this case, I was reading a quote this morning where they just said, look, you can't, he can't run a progressive company exactly. and be a union buster. So it, it's it, simple, it, it gets Andrew. into it. Really, I, I mean, you're, you're feigning naivete that you no, can't understand what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You're running a woke company. It's tough to be anti-union. I understand Andrew's point that, right. you know, it's it's hard to raise off the base that he'd already built with that. Now that's come up. Wages are higher. And it's a, it's a much more difficult situation um, because wages are so high. Benefits are so strong at so many of these places, especially over the last few years. You've watched retailers and others increase right. the benefits Amazon. plans and everything that they're offering. Not just Amazon, Target, Walmart. The, the things that Walmart they're doing for employees are the things that Howard Schultz did first. But now there are all these other companies who have copied it. He's, he's right. The, the situation's got a lot improved greatly, so I don't know how he jumps and kind of takes it to the next level. Um, anyway, it's interesting, and we'll continue to watch it. So let's talk about a developing story and one that's likely to shape the country's social discourse for decades to come. According to a draft opinion leaked to Politico, the Supreme Court appears poised to overturn Roe vs. Wade. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now from Washington. Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Well, NBC News has not confirmed the draft opinion, but the document would amount to an unprecedented leak, uh, and it could change in the coming months. But the leaked document opinion or the leaked draft opinion released by Politico indicates that the Supreme Court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade. The document is reportedly authored by Justice Samuel Alito. In it, he states that we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Now, it's important to note that this is not the final word from justices, but it is raising concerns. Advocacy, advocacy groups say overturning Roe v. Wade would be a devastating blow to women and a setback. Uh, meanwhile, others who support ending abortion say if the draft is in fact going to be the final ruling, they say that they applaud the court's decision. Now, overturning the landmark decision would allow states to outright ban abortion. Both Democrats and Republicans, they've criticized the leak, calling it an unprecedented and, uh, unprecedented and rare move. A spokesperson for the high court has no comment. Uh, but it's, it is important to note that this is not the final decision from the Supreme Court, and a final decision is not expected until late June or early July, Andrew. Bree Jackson, uh, we appreciate it. An issue that is likely to become a big one for businesses as they, of course, uh, try to figure out how uh, and whether they will either speak out or how to how to deal with it. Um, as you very well know, there are a number of companies that even in the past couple of months have decided uh, to pay for people to leave states where they can get abortions uh, and the like. And of course, we've seen uh, when politics and, and business merge, what can happen because there's been retribution, as we've also seen in places like Florida and Georgia, when companies do speak out. Cheese will be next. Next, on Squawk Pod, billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones says it's a bad, bad time for investors. We're in one of those very difficult periods where simply capital preservation is, I think, the most important thing that we can strive for. I don't know if it's going to be one of those periods where you're actually trying to make money. You don't want to miss this. We'll be right back. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. 
Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew Q. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Becky Quick. The Federal Reserve kicking off its latest policy meeting today. The central bank widely expected to raise interest rates by 50 basis points, double the amount that many expected just a few weeks ago. That move uh, along with COVID lockdowns in China and the war in Ukraine has spooked investors and led to volatile markets this spring. Joining us right now to talk about all of this and so much more, legendary investor, Paul Tudor Jones. Paul is co-chairman and chief investment officer at Tudor Investment Corporation. He's also, of course, the founder of the Robinhood Foundation. And we should say that next Monday, Robinhood is hosting its annual benefit to raise money to fight poverty in New York City. Over the past two years, the organization has provided more than $340 million in relief and support for New Yorkers living in poverty and was so very important during this pandemic. Paul, it's great to see you this morning especially ahead of this uh, meeting in Washington. I'm curious if you could either be a fly on the wall, but maybe more importantly, a whisperer, a Fed whisperer. What would you be telling Jay Powell right now? Oh, I'd, I'd be saying looking for, look for another job. I think this is one of the most challenging periods ahead for the Federal Reserve Board in its history. And it's certainly something that we've I don't know if we've ever navigated anything like this, certainly uh, not in your lifetime or Becky's lifetime with the, the other codger, Joe, on this group. He, he probably remembers it like I do because I think he's my age. But we've just never seen anything like this since the 70s. So it's, it's really uncharted waters. I, I like to think of it as a, cr- a crosshatch ocean. You know how normally in the ocean you'll have one swell that moves one direction? Occasionally you'll get a situation where you have one swell moving in one direction and then another swell coming cross hatch and it creates this impression of squares in the ocean. So imagine trying to navigate that when you're in a boat where you're dealing with the swell this way and this way and this way and this way. And that's what we've got right now. And what is the, the captain of your ship, that you're the captain of it, how are you navigating it? Meaning, to the extent that you're setting up your portfolio to try to get around these swells, what are you doing? It's really hard. <clears throat> Normally, I've got a lot of very strident ideas on things. It's, again, it's really hard. I'll, I'll give an example. So, if you look at how much financial conditions index is tightened just in the last month. The only other times that it's tightened this much, and just to remind everyone, financial conditions index is a composite of the stock market, the dollar, credit spreads, and and it's a very good indicator of the general strength of the overall economy, a good proxy for it. So it's moved 
so much in the last month. The only other two times I think that exceeded it were in Lehman Brothers in 2008 as well as in March of 2020. The other times since they began calculating that index back in 1980 was 81 and 82, uh, right after the crash of 87, right after 9-11, I think twice in 2002 towards the bottom of the bear market, uh, and then three times in 2008, and then <clears throat> March of 2020 during the pandemic. So every one of those instances were all associated with cuts, Federal Reserve Board cuts, within 24 days on average, literally some of them within two or three days. Now all of a sudden we've got the same kind of reaction in the markets, which is a clearly a risk off. Cred spreads have blown out, stocks are down 13% in the year, the dollar's up uh, significantly. All that normally has provoked or evoked a, a Fed response of cutting rates, and yet we're probably on the cusp of 200 basis points or rises in rates by mid-September, so it's, 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 it's uncharted territories where we're going. And but but do, you, do you look at that, Paul, and say to yourself that a recession is coming? Do you say everything's on sale, I got to buy things? Do you say that uh, I got to short this market? I mean, what's the... I know you say you don't have a strident view, but you must be telling well, I mean, look, your traders to do something. Clearly, you don't want to own bonds and stocks. You start with that. It's going to be a very, very, uh, a very negative situation for either one of those asset classes, right? You can't think of a worse macro environment than, than where we are right now for financial assets. And again, one of the reasons, I think maybe the biggest differentiator between now and those other periods over the past 40 years is look at the level of overvaluation that we were both in rates as well as, as, um, as stocks. So that's one reason why even with this tightening in financial conditions, we've still, the Fed still probably has to raise rates to get inflation under control. Heck, we had CPI greater than 8%. Maybe it comes down to 4% this year, maybe it comes down to 3% if they stay the course and stay tight in 2023. If you've got inflation greater than 3% on average, your purchasing power declines, cuts in half in 13 years. It's why uh, I, I wish we could go back to those halcyon days of sub 2% inflation when you didn't have to worry about the value of your money, you didn't have to worry about what you were doing with regard to pay raises, and you didn't have to worry about um, a whole pricing and a variety of things that all of a sudden become that much more important in trying to, again, just have a normal business that you didn't have, that you have to think about when inflation's 3% and higher and you don't have to think about when inflation's 2% and under. I think the biggest lesson that we've all learned, certainly central banks have learned with the experimentation they did in 2019, 2020, uh, with average inflation targeting, is that be careful what you ask for. Sub 2% inflation is a much better problem to have than inflation above 2%. It's very difficult to calibrate once it escapes like it has now. That's the scary part for Jay Powell is 
the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, and we've seen in history when the genie's gotten out of the bottle, it's really, really hard to put it back in there. Um, so, no, I wouldn't want to be in his seat right now. But, but if you don't want to own bonds and you don't want to own stocks, what do you want to own? You want to own, uh, uh, own oil? Is this well, a commodity so, so play again, for you? What's the- you put me in a tough spot because I don't want to be the purveyor of gloom. And if we look at the 70s, there was virtually nothing that you could own that had a positive return. Gold did a round tripper, commodities did a round tripper. Uh, stocks pretty much went nowhere. Bonds had, you know, had negative returns over that period. So I think we're in one of those very difficult periods where simply capital preservation is I think the most important thing that we can strive for, I don't know if it's going to be one of those periods where you're actually trying to make money. Because again, just look where we are right now. We've got negative 5% long real rates. That's unprecedented. We've only seen that um, two or three times in history. One was at the end of World War II, uh, then twice in the 70s. One was in 74 and one was in 78, you just, again, I, I keep coming back to the 70s because it's the only other comparable period that we're in right now. It was a really, really challenging time for virtually anything. It was, it was a fantastic time for uh, macro, for my business. You had roller coaster rides all the time where you pretty much ended up back in the same spot quite often. So. Uh, if there was a strategy that I would want to employ right now, if someone put a gun to my head, I'd say simple trend-following strategies. They're not too popular today. They haven't worked really that well for the past decade. They didn't work when central banks were at zero rates. They'll probably do really well, I think, in the next five or ten years because we're probably going to be in one of these stop-start patterns with central banks. Remember. They've got, they've got uh, uh, Scylla and Charybdis, these clashing things, inflation, inflation on the, one hand, on the one hand, slowing growth on the other, and they're going to be clashing all the time. So I think we had four different Fed chairs during the 70s because no one could get it right between growth and inflation, and they tried everything, right? We, that's when we tried... Um, Wage, wage and price controls, which didn't work. We tried that for a period of time. And then finally you had to bring in the closer, Paul Volcker, to just absolutely crush the economy uh, in the middle of another inflationary binge um, in 79. And it's, I, don't, I don't know if we'll get to that point, but I think there's huge volatility. Yeah. A uh, hey, huge Paul. volatility probably straight ahead. And yep. We had buttons, Paul. We had buttons, uh, win buttons, whip inflation now buttons. And uh, for the record, you, you are quite a bit older uh, than I am. <laughs> but I look so much prettier, though. A matter of months. You're, you're a matter of months older <laughs> than I am. And I resemble that remark at Codger, too. So I, I'm on the record. Uh, I do resemble that, that, you, that you would say that. Paul, I, I just want to ask you quickly then, because you, you've been positive about crypto and Bitcoin. And, and in an environment like this, where it's obvious these are speculative assets benefiting 
from all this free money, how on earth can you not look at Bitcoin and say, what am I thinking? This could be a giant uh, speculative bubble. And then my question, therefore, is, is it a symptom of this giant bubble, or is it an antidote or an answer to what caused the bubble in the first place? Joe, I've just got to tell you, my third daughter says, is that man going to annoy you again? Why does he always annoy you? And um, <laughs> Have I annoyed you? No. no. Uh, she you, she just I, reads it, I think. No, she, she, she says he always asks you the hardest questions. Is he going to do that again? This is not hard, is it? This is, well, actually, this, I, here's what I was going to start out by saying. If you ignore Paul Tudor Jones, Ignore him at your own peril. And you may not always be right, but you were Druckenmiller. I mean, there's, there's not many guys like you. So, I mean, I really want to hear your answer on this because I, I'm bullish on Bitcoin. I don't see how I can be. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, thanks for the question. It's a great question. Here's what I see. I see this uh, generational divide, and it's, it's, it's a digital divide. And unfortunately, Joe, you and I are probably on the other side of it, though I think we're both scrambling as fast as we can to understand it. If you look, and, and I see it all the time in our quant groups, I see it all the time in my kids' friends. If you look at the smartest and brightest minds that are coming out of colleges today, um, so many of them are going into crypto, so many of them are going into the internet 3.0. It's hard not to want to be long crypto because of the intellectual capital, just the sheer amount of intellectual capital that's going into that space. And clearly, if you think about the ultimate dream of crypto, it's, it's a borderless internet, right? Where all of a sudden you have blockchain as the verification code to allow anyone on the internet to instantly connect because the blockchain verifies who they are. And then that opens up just huge possibilities. Clearly, central banks and central governments are not going to necessarily be huge fans of that, particularly when it comes to using crypto as a medium of exchange. That's the number one thing that's holding it back is the fact that you're not going to get buy-ins from governments because they lose the ability to control um, the creation and the, and the supply of money. Having said that, in a world where we're starting to deglobalize and breaking down um, and actually probably going reverse, that ability to have the borderless internet, that ability to have um, to have a store of value outside of necessarily having your money denominated, whether it's in rubles or won or dollars, it becomes very attractive. So I've got my modest allocation to crypto. I have a trading position on top of that that goes from fully invested to, to zero. And I'd say right now I'm modestly invested and I, I, would, I would think that it's gonna have a, a bright future as we roll through these rate hikes at some point in time. A lot of it depends on what our central bank does. A lot of it depends on how serious we are about fighting inflation. 
I kind of think that when we get down to it, and that might be September, could be November. I mean, we could easily be at 2.5% rates in, in September, right? That's just 50 a meeting for four meetings. It'll be a different world. You'll now have, you know, now the cost of owning crypto, gold, and other inflation hedges will be, uh, will be more significant. And it'll be interesting to see whether that's enough to quell inflation. If not, they're going to have another leg higher. Or if the Fed stops short, you're going to get another leg higher in inflation. Just one, one divergent comment. I was at dinner last night with the head of a really big conglomerate in the States. And they're, an energy, he, they're, they're known as an energy company, but they have just a multitude of investments. And he made two really important points. One was they're not investing in energy because the ESG concerns are so great that it just makes them want to stay away from that space. And they can't get credit because banks don't want to fund that because of ESG concerns. So I thought, well, I thought that was very telling. It makes me a lot more constructive on, uh, on oil and commodities than I was before I heard that. And he also mentioned, because they have some businesses in Russia, that the lagged impacts of inflation are just now really starting to manifest themselves. So much of what we saw at year end with rising wages, supply chain issues, they're actually just now starting to push through and will continue to push through uh, over the course of the next couple of months. So if you look at the history of inflation, there's a hysteresis effect where there's a big lagged effect of it. So uh, I think we're not gonna see, clearly inflation's not accelerating, it's decelerating. But I think it's going to be much harder to tame than we think, and it's going to take much longer, and it's going to be much more challenging for financial markets as a result. And if we stop short, like we did in the mid-'70s, remember, we had an inflation bulge in 70, another one that looks just like now uh, at the end of 73, beginning of 74. They, the Fed hiked enough to put us into recession in late 74, and then they stopped, and then we got that massive inflation bulge in the latter half of the decade. And I, I, again, you're going to have to really watch what central banks do here. How serious are they about truly killing inflation? Hey, Paul, um, you mentioned ESG. You uh, started Just Capital. I wanted to ask you about the, the headline of the morning around the country, which is this draft opinion uh, that would uh, effectively strike down Roe, versus, uh, Roe v. Wade. And how do you think business is going to react to it? Uh, and how, if, if in fact it goes through, how business should react to it? We've already seen uh, companies around the country speak out on lots of different social issues, uh, in certain cases, uh, paying to have uh, their employees go to other states uh, for these things, uh, for abortions and the like. Uh, this is an issue where 70% of the country uh, is uh, apparently, when you look at the polls, on the other side of where the Supreme Court is and what kind of pressure companies are going to have from their own employees and also from customers. Well, um, I have to admit I haven't had a chance to really form an opinion on that. I, I, I don't mean to duck the question. I hope 
they don't overturn it um, on a personal basis. I haven't had a th chance to really get my head around how companies should react. I keep thinking that that's much more of a personal issue. Yeah, I, I, I don't want to try to comment on that just yet. I hope they don't do it. That would be my personal opinion. I look at the one a, thing. A, can I just say one yeah. thing? The one thing that I see, if you want to define, and again, I say this with my Robin Hood hat on, if you want to define poverty in America, the easiest way to do it is to point, is to find a uh, single female head of a family, one paycheck earner, and trying to support a family. If you wanted to solve poverty, we'd do everything we could to encourage a two-parent family uh, with two paychecks supporting uh, a family. So I've always thought that that's our goal to actually beat poverty. So I want to make sure that a child comes into a, a loving situation where they have everything that's going for them, two caring parents. And uh, that's kind of the way that I look at the, uh, the whole thing. We just got to encourage that as much as we possibly can, because that's how you beat poverty. It's that simple. What, what's your reaction, though, maybe more broadly to what's happened, for example, in Florida? Um, Governor DeSantis taking aim at Disney, uh, clearly over their position, about his position. We're seeing, we're seeing companies, as we said, speak out on these social issues, but then uh, in many cases uh, have some kind of uh, political retribution that actually has a business uh, impact. And how do you think businesses are going to react as a result of that now? Uh, it's, it's, again, I'm torn on this issue because on the one hand, I, I, keep, I, I know that businesses need to be involved certainly on a variety of issues such as um, making sure that their employees, the most important of course is making sure that their employees are living above the poverty line and paying a wage above the poverty line. But I know from our polling adjust that there's a whole host of issues that Americans think that companies should be talking about. It's, and again, I look at the, the fight between Disney and, and the governor there and uh, there are arguments, there are some arguments on both sides of the issue. I, again, I, forgive me, I'm just not, I'm not informed enough to really speak to it that much. Let me ask you a final question, which is something you're very informed about, which is Robin Hood, this foundation that you, that, that you started so many years ago and has done so much remarkable work uh, for the city of New York. Uh, the big benefit coming up next week. If there was one thing you could do um, with Robin Hood now, what would it be? I think we just got to keep on doing what we're doing. The benefit next week, our, our, our centerpiece is going to be on childcare. Boy, since the, the pandemic, we've lost 1,500 childcare centers in New York City. And they're just so, so important. And the reason they're important is a working mother, a single parent mother, has to have a place to take her child so she can go earn that paycheck to get her family out of poverty. And child care centers, we know the benefits of early childhood. Here's an interesting uh, fact that I didn't know. You can forecast 
prison beds, incarceration rates 15 years from now by the number of third graders that can't read in a county. And the reason why is because 90% of a child's development, cognitive development, is done by the age of five. So childcare is so important because you have these great places where kids can aggregate and that's where they socially develop and, and so many of their, their, their uh, so many of their mental faculties are developed during those socialization, those developmental programs. So uh, we think that child care has a nine to one payoff for every dollar contributed. You get nine times uh, the bang. A kid that doesn't go to child care is probably going to be something like 33%, um, 33% fewer earnings than in, uh, for, for the rest of their lifetime than a kid that does go to child care. So our benefits next Monday night, we've got an unbelievable benefit. We've got um, John Ledge and Charlie Puth. We've got John Mullaney, and we've got two or three phenomenally big announcements. And to quote the, my f favorite line from one of my favorite movies that Joe will remember, this could be the greatest night of our life. But we're not getting into the death mobile from Animal House. We're going to get into the fun mobile at Robin Hood filled with hope. It's going to be awesome. And we've got a bunch of really wonderful surprise announcements that I think will be big for New York City. And I hope everyone can go to RobinHood.org and contribute or buy a ticket and come. It's going to be a beautiful night of uh, rejuvenation, I think. Uh, Paul, uh, we uh, commend you on all the good work you're doing. Uh, you gave us a lot to think about with the markets this morning. I, I know that we're going to be talking about a lot of it, and we appreciate uh, you joining us this morning. Good luck next Monday. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Yeah. Thanks, you too. The, the other line, Paul, uh, after Dean Wormer closes down uh, and kicks those guys out, seven years of college down the drain. <laughs> Thank you, sir. May I have another? Next on Squawk Pod, living La Dolce Vita. That is nice to sit in the sun and have an Aperol spritz. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Joe, you got some good news. Yeah, yeah. I like this news. Squawk, but we still do that. That uh, one of the one of the last holdovers of uh, of fun on the show. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, shares of Campari are higher. The uh, Italy-based spirits company reported a 34 percent increase in net sales, citing momentum in its brands, including mm, Aperol and Aperol Spritz. Wild Turkey, eh, not so much. That's kind of scary. 
It also benefited uh, from a strong recovery of on-premise consumption in Europe. People are back out, I guess. Sales in the U.S. were up by 6.6% despite uh, what it described as tough comps. And in, in Italy, Becky, that, that is nice to sit in the sun and have an Aperol spritz. Have you done? I don't like them. Too bitter. You can get them with Campari and a little... You, you can, I can find instead. one you'd like. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I can find one. You, and you'll definitely like the second one. <laughs> a lot more than the first, probably. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend to listen to. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.